And welcome to another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast here on the Crossing Broad Network. I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined as always by Crossing Broad's Phillies writer, Bob Wankel at BW Crossing Broad. And Bob, a whole different mentality today, I think, for us um, going into uh, into the podcast than we were a week ago when we last talked. Uh, last week when we, we did the show, uh, the Phillies were riding high. It was on their off night. They were 14-7. and seven. There was They were looking like, a, like world beaters. And then in the past seven days, they've uh, gone 2-5 and five against the Diamondbacks, the Braves, and last night, the woeful Miami Marlins, who they're now 2-2 two and two against this season, um, and uh, didn't look good doing it. And so we have a lot to unpack with this team uh, because it, it's not as rosy right now as it was when we last spoke last week. Yeah, I think I was talking about trade deadline acquisitions at one point last week <laughs> for the playoff push. Yeah, I mean, I know better than that, but uh, it was not an encouraging week, that's for sure. Um, I will tell you, off the heels of a four-game sweep of the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, I took that with a little bit of a grain of salt, but I was obviously excited about the fact that they had gotten off to a 14-7 and start. I was not all that concerned with the fact they lost two out of three to Arizona. And you could kind of maybe see that coming. They're a very good team. You know, at some point you're going to cool off. A uh, little bit concerned about what we watched this weekend, though. Uh, two out of three, again, they lose to the Braves. Uh, this time at home, they're three and six against them this season. 54 to 30, they've been outscored in those nine games. And when you really just watch the two teams play, I know coming in that the Phillies were supposed to be the superior young team in the NL East. Uh, certainly more so over Atlanta, it has it not played out that way to this point. And I know that Atlanta is uh, 16 and 11, the Phillies are 16 and 12, so they're only a half game behind. But these two teams look like they are in, on completely different levels at this point. And that does concern me a little bit, as does what I watched last night. You know, uh, not, not a great game by the Phillies by any measure. Uh, Jake Arrieta struggled, same offensive woes, base running mistakes, things like that. Um, it, it's not a great picture it's not a pretty picture as we sit here this morning and uh record yeah no it's 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 not and the you know the thing that you that you mentioned that and, and where the difference i think really lies with this phillies team and the braves team um is you know everybody anticipated the phillies lineup would be really solid really strong this year um and it just hasn't been i mean it really hasn't yeah the only consistency you're getting is Really is Oduble, but I mean, even you know Cesar, at least he's getting still getting on base and still hitting okay, and Hoskins is still doing his thing. But other than that, you got nothing else. The the rest of the lineup is is will be gone. Um, and Atlanta's lineup is pretty darn good. I mean, it really is. I mean, there, there's guys top to bottom in that lineup who are just hitting and you know really just attack attack the ball and do a nice job. Um, I thought that the Phillies probably had an edge on them pitching wise but I think you, you've looked at it and a little bit closer and it's turned out that it's a lot more even than maybe I thought and uh, and, and uh, that's why maybe Atlanta's ahead of them right now all right well let's let's talk about the offense let's compare these two teams from an offensive standpoint and we can talk about team performance team output but let's also talk about the individuals and really just what you see I mean now, if, if Ender Enciarte played against the Phillies uh, for 162 games, I MVP. Mean, he, would be, he would be the MVP <laughs> of baseball. I mean, the guy's out of his mind. Uh, but I look at what the Phillies were supposed to be. They were supposed to be a team filled with young, promising hitters, uh, top to bottom, you know, p- pick a spot, and they had a guy there that you felt like, wow, this guy could really make a significant jump or he's going to you know, bust onto the scene and, and really get it done. Now, 
that's not happened. And then you look across at Atlanta and you see Ronald Acuna come up and you're like, wow, you, you see the potential and you see what he can do right away. Immediate production. Ozzie Albies, who I've seen absolutely just about enough of Ozzie Albies uh, through you know a month of the season. I, I'm Guy's ready to pretty move damn, on from him. He's he pretty has damn been, good. He's been out of his mind uh, at, at this point. And, I mean, he's got 34 hits. He leads uh, all of baseball in total bases. He leads the, the NL in doubles, extra base hits, tied for the home run lead. I mean, it's it's crazy uh, the the type of production they've gotten out of him, and I don't know if he's this good or if he can keep this up. But he has been awesome. And then you look at guys like Jorge Alfaro struggle to make contact, although he he made some contact in the second inning last night. Uh, yeah. Tremendous home run. Um, but you, you look at J.P. Crawford, he's a sub-200 hitter. Nick Williams, who we can talk about a little bit later on, uh, has really struggled. Aaron Altair, sub-200 hitter. Scott Kingery is scuffling. I mean, so you just see it from the eye test and you go, forget, forget overall output. You see the Braves young guys really starting to you know, grow and, and show a progression, whereas the Phillies, these guys have all either you know, underwhelmed or in some cases even regressed. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the one scenario, though, where I think it's okay, where, you know, where you look at with Atlanta. Um, yeah, and, yes, they've had, you know, Albies is on fire, like you mentioned. Acuna came right up and, and just provided pop. and But he might be a real generational-type player. I mean, a lot of people think that of him. Um, but if you, if you look at, you know, Albies last year, and even more so as a greater example, Dansby Swanson, who had a terrible year last year, um, it, maybe it takes that first year to get through, you know. And maybe it, maybe you got to go that first year before you realize exactly how you have to approach it. Um, and so maybe with a guy like Kingery, uh, if you want to compare, I mean, I think Swanson, you know, was you know, obviously was the number one overall pick, and Scott Kingery, Scott Kingery was not. Um, but like, if you want to make a comparison between the two, maybe that's what what you're seeing Kingery go through. Like, we have high expectations for him, and he's struggling, and we can't figure out quite why. And maybe it just it's it's a matter of time for him to just just keep playing, keep playing, keep playing, and then he'll figure it out, and by next year everything will be great. So I mean, there is that. You know, the Braves do have a couple of guys who who got their toe in the water last year a little bit more than maybe the, some of the Phillies guys have. But you're right, on the whole, <laughs> that lineup is is far better than the Phillies lineup right now, and it, there's no arguing it. There just is no arguing it. The Braves are hitting, and the Phillies are not, and and yeah, that's the, and, and that's the difference. I don't want to make it sound like I'm burying these guys. Like, I think that Scott Kingery is going to be a very good player. You know, you're right. not going to be up on a guy on March 30th and then watch him kind of, you know, have some ups and downs for 30 games essentially and then say, well, this isn't going to work out. I mean, I expect him to get it together. I actually expect him to get it together this season and, and still have a very good year. Um, and, you know, but there – I guess what I look at is you bring in a guy like Carlos Santana who you think is going to stabilize your lineup, veteran presence and all of that. And we've talked a little bit about him on, on past podcasts, and we'll talk a little bit about him later on, I'm sure. But obviously you haven't gotten the production out of him to this point. And, you, you know, you look up and you see a guy like Nick Markakis sporting a 1.6 war, which is amongst – the best uh, of anybody in baseball right now. Uh, Freddie Freeman, obviously, is a, is a perennial all-star, uh, very good player. He's having a good start to the season. Uh, we talked about Enciarte a little bit. He's been productive, annoying at the top of the order at times for them. They have just – they've really generated a, a ton of offense to this point, and um, it, it's weird. I would have thought 16 and 12 at, at this point – I would have felt pretty good about it, but when I look at where these guys are at, you know, on an individual basis, it's hard to get 
overly excited at this point just because you see so many individual guys struggling to this point. And and you look at the and you look at the Braves. They lead the National League in runs as a team. They lead the NL in total hits, OPS, whereas the Phillies are twelfth in runs scored, uh, which I think is kind of skewed by the twenty run game that they put up. Uh, they're twenty seventh in hits, twentieth in OPS. That's 81 points lower in OPS than the Atlanta Braves um, at this point in the season, which I just, I guess maybe we should have seen this coming, but I, I certainly did not. And um, it's just kind of like, I guess I thought that four games over 500 going, you know, waking up on May 1st would be a nice place to be. And I'd, I'd feel great about everything, but I, I just don't right now uh, yeah, as I, mean, I well, watch this. Well, the reason is, and we, when we really go back and look at it, Bob, the Phillies got off to a 14-7 and seven start, not because of their offense, but because their starting pitching was just excellent. I mean, other than Ben Lively, the whole first um, 21 games, this, the starters were, were solid. They were really strong. And you look over the last seven, um, you know, Arietta, the, the Phillies won the game. Arietta started against the Diamondbacks, but he didn't look great in that game. And then, of course, he had a, a, an incredible clunker last night. He was terrible. Um, Nick Pavetta had his first game where he didn't look very good against Atlanta. Um, and, and Velazquez had a couple nice starts, and then all of a sudden he went back to old Vinny Velazquez the last, couple, last two starts and makes you wonder if this guy's ever going to be anything at all. And we, you know, I, know, I know you and I both don't think he will be, but um, these last two starts have been really ugly for him. Um, Lively got lit up again um, and then ended up on the DL. Um, so we're going to see, we're going to get uh, our, our first dose of Zach Eflin this year. Um, so I think that, you know, other than really Nola, who was the only one, and even he got touched for three runs in the first inning by the Braves, um, before the Phillies, uh, bounced back in that game. Um, th- th- other than Nola, the last seven starts have not been good starts. And that's the, and that's the difference because the Phillies were winning in spite of their lack of hitting. And now, if the pitching doesn't come through for you, well, this is you're going to get blown out of the building, which is kind of what's happened in I think four or five of these, uh, or, or maybe I think all five losses actually they gave up a lot of runs, correct? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Saturday wasn't too bad. Pavetta, Pavetta wasn't good on Saturday, but I mean, he yeah. I think he went five innings, gave up three runs. Uh, I believe that was his line. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like he was he was horrendous or didn't give them a chance to win the game. Whereas Velasquez, one pitch in on Sunday afternoon, put his team in a <laughs> hole and then and then did what he does. You know, a couple right. strikeouts, a couple extra base hits, and he's out of the game in the what the fifth inning. He didn't even get through five, right? Yeah. So. I mean, he just – let's talk about him. Let's just – let's talk about him a little bit. And I don't need to read stat lines anymore with the, him. You know, we, we've talked about him a couple times already. Uh, he – he I don't want to see him anymore. And I know that they really don't necessarily have better options at this point. But he is a guy that that has not figured it out. He has shown no sign of being able to figure it out. He over-relies on the fastball. His secondary pitches have not developed. He cannot throw an effective changeup. The curveball is a, is a so-so pitch for him. It, it, it's there sometimes. You know, he breaks one off occasionally. But it, at the end of the day, it always goes back to the fastball. And teams know it. And he also struggles to consistently locate it. And the ball doesn't have a ton of run on it. He's not, you know, up there throwing a, a pitch that has significant late run where hitters know it's coming and they still can't square it up. I mean, his fastball is 
eminently hittable. And when hitters sit on it, they're going to continue to tee off. And there have been times where he's been able to mix in the off-speed stuff and the secondary pitches where he's been okay. He's been somewhat effective. But overall, game in, game out, he cannot string together consistent performances. You can't trust him. He kills your bullpen. And it's pretty to watch a 97-mile-an-hour fastball go by hitters occasionally. But we've got to get over that. And, and I also don't want to hear any more about Vince Velasquez is a closer. If you just transition him to the bullpen, he's going to be lights out. Guess what? No, he's not. He's not going to be lights out for the same exact reason that he sucks as a starter. Because he relies on his fastball, it's a hittable fastball, and he has nothing else to go to. And so... Guess what? We're in the 8th, ninth inning. Oh, here comes Vince Velasquez. I wonder what I'm going to get. I'm going to take that one curveball away. He's going to throw one garbage change up, up there, and, and now he's coming back with the fastball, and it's not going to work out. Uh, I don't mean to – it sounds like it's almost personal, but I'm just tired of like the, this idea that Vince Velasquez can be an elite starting pitcher or that he's going to be a future all-star closer because he throws the ball hard. There are – the guys that throw the ball 95-plus are a dime a dozen in this league. You you know, it's not like he's the only guy that can throw a 97, 98 mile an hour four seam fastball. So I think it's time to get over that. And that's where I'm at on Vince Velasquez at this point. Whew. How's that sound? How do you like that fire? Wow. <laughs> I got to towel off. He stinks, I, man. <laughs> I got to towel off. No, um, I, I mean, again, I don't disagree with you. I, one thing I, I mean, you're, you're not a fan of his changeup, and I, I get it, and I understand why. Because he doesn't what, throw it. I mean, he doesn't even well, try to throw it. Well, that's my, that's what, that's where my concern lies. Because he did have a couple of nice starts uh, earlier this year, uh, granted against not great teams, but nevertheless, he was peppering guys with changeups. He was throwing it 33 percent of the time, which is something that was ridiculous for him. Like he was, he has never done that previously, and certainly hasn't done it since. If it was effective for two games, and it, I, I know it's only two games, but if it was effective for two games, why go away from it? And and if if it's because he's calling his own pitches, if he's like, well, I'm going to blow my fastball by a guy here, and he's getting rocked on it. As if you're if you run the if you're a pitching coach, if you're Rick Kranitz, don't you sit there and say, no, you're gonna you're gonna throw what we tell you to throw, or else you're not going to be in the rotation. Right. Doesn't that shouldn't it be that? I mean, shouldn't there be some oversight? I don't know. I, I, look again. Maybe I'm old. Maybe I'm maybe I'm an old guy because I grew up in an era where the pitches were called from the from the from the dugout, right? And and now maybe they're not. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that if he had success doing that twice in two games, why why did we get away from it? Why did we stop it? Yeah, when you look at his pitch selection, it still sits around 60% fastball, and it's always kind of ranged in that area for him. Uh, Curveballs remain consistent. He's throwing change up 8% of the time. I mean, it's just not, it's not something that hitters respect. It's not something that, that they really have to account for. Um, he's worked in a, a slider a, a little bit more. You know, it's not the, the traditional 12-6 to 6 looping curveball. But, it, again, he doesn't throw it with effectiveness. He doesn't. It's not a pitch that hitters have to account for. It's not a pitch that hitters have to respect. And this is what you're going to continue to get with him. I, I know that he's still young. <laughs> he's one of these guys that feels like he's been around forever at this point. Mm-hmm. I know he's still young. And um, I, I get why the Phillies need to give him a chance because you know because of the big arm, because of the high ceiling and all of that. And, and frankly, there's just not really a better option within this organization right now to take the ball every fifth day. But I've moved on mentally. If, if it works out, I will gladly come on here and say, wow, 
he was really able to develop those secondary pitches. He's a guy that has now located his fastball on a more consistent basis. Uh, he, the light has gone on, and I am so happy for him and great because he seems like a wonderful guy. But I, I just personally, the, the window is, is either shut or it's just about to as far as I'm concerned. And you know what I actually thought? to myself watching him pitch the other day you know how like when you and, and I wrote a little bit about this on the website you know how you have these players that you're like this guy's going to be really good he's going to be the next young player that's going to take us to where we want to go and I actually asked people on Twitter like come up with a list of these people and then some people said like Darren Roth and LJ Smith and Michael Carter Williams and like all these young players that you just talked yourselves into being the next superstar here in Philadelphia he's a guy that not only is he not that player, but like you get two, three years away from him and you say, thank God that that's over. Like, do you remember when we used to think that Vince Velasquez was going to be a number one or number two on our staff? You know, do you remember that? Like, thank God those days are over with. And I think that that's what he is. He's the guy that you say, remember when we tried to talk ourselves into him? Because it, it's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Okay, so he, I, I got a um, pitch breakdown for him and I think looking at this is something I didn't even look at before the show now that I'm looking at it right now I think I can see why he's throwing the way he's throwing and I think this is a situation where maybe the numbers are lying to you a little bit okay so he's thrown so far this season 830 fastballs and teams are only hitting 222 against his fastball which is not good I mean that's not great slugging percentage 443 I mean it's not the greatest. I mean, yeah, that's all of the home runs that he gives up are, are on fastballs for the most part, right? But his pitch breakdown, 830 pitches, teams hitting 222 against him. Against the curve, teams are hitting 283. Against the changeup, teams are hitting 459. <laughs> against the slider, teams are hitting 333. But I think that what you're seeing there is those numbers are being elevated because he doesn't throw them enough. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, okay, if, if, if you got guys have 17 hits and 37 at-bats against the changeup, um, that's where the 459 average comes in. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there are hard-hit balls. Only nine of those hits have been single. I mean, nine of those hits have been singles, four doubles. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's not okay, a, it's let not me ask a, it's, you this it's, then. it's it's not I don't think he's giving I think he's getting weaker contact on that pitch and and he's not going to it because guys are getting hits off of it. But I, you know, I I think it's too small of a sample to sit there and say, "Well, well, that's that's I can't throw that now. Let me go back to the fastball where guys are only hitting 222 against the fastball and yet they're they're one that they're putting out of the park or hitting for extra bases. I mean, 16 extra base hits on fastballs already this year. So, who, who does that fall on, ultimately? I mean, we, we know there's a, a – you want to talk about sample size. Well, there's a, a significant sample size at this point that indicates that what he has done and his approach on the mound is ineffective, right? I think that we would all agree that he has not maximized his capabilities or he has not reached the point that this team or this organization had hoped he would reach. So – why has there not been an adjustment? When you look at his pitch breakdowns from season to season over the last three years, it's generally the same. Is it because he just, at the end of the day, has no confidence in it? Is it that he feels like, this is what got me here, so I am going to continue to stick with it? I'm going to live and, and die by it? Or is it, what is it? I mean, he, okay, yeah, he doesn't throw it enough. Well, whose fault is that? Well, I mean, look, so I remember back when Charlie Manuel was a manager here, and 
everybody would always kill Charlie for his decisions. And I would sit there and say, well, listen, when it comes to the pitchers, this is, that's not Charlie managing the pitchers. That's Rich Doobie. That's and that's what you know. That's that's dictating the pitching, and it, it was a it was a very unique um, relationship then. Like Charlie really didn't make any calls on the pitchers at all. Doobie called everything. Doobie decided when guys warmed up. Doobie decided when guys were coming out of a game. Even though it was Charlie that was walking out to the mound and actually you know making the change, it was all Doobie's call. Um, I don't know what the relationship is right now with Kapler and Kranitz, but I, I think if you if you sit there and you say, well, whose fault is it? It's got to fall on the pitching coach first, more so than the manager. I mean, I, as somebody who likes to criticize Kapler, I can't criticize him here because, it, to me, this falls on a pitching coach. It's why you have a pitching coach. And the pitching coach's job is to make sure that the player is throwing the pitches he needs to throw at the right times. And if the pitching coach is not changing anything, well, then you know the questions have to go to the pitching coach. You know, yes, the pitcher has to do things too. I, I, I've never, I'm, I don't want to always sound like I'm, I'm defending the player and blaming the coaching. I, I, I get that a lot because I do it in hockey as well. But it, it, the fact of the matter is, is that at some point, if a player is doing something repeatedly wrong, then it has to be incumbent upon a coach to change that. And if they don't, if they don't, if the coach is trying to change it and it doesn't change, then it's up to the management to to rectify the problem. Okay. Yeah. Because well, and, then I, the, and listen, then the player's I'm, not coming. Well over. aware. I'm well aware that you can make yourself sound like an idiot by overreacting to what you see after six or seven starts. You know, and yeah, sure. and perhaps I just watched what I've watched over his last two starts, and I've just checked out on this. And four or five starts from now, you go, huh, how about your boy Vinny Velo? Right, he's back. And uh, he's going to have another good start mixed in there, and he's going to he's going to do this to me all over again, right? I, I know this. I know that he's going to have one of those games where he goes out, throws seven innings, strikes out eleven, and he looks like a world beater. And I'm going to let myself say maybe he's turning the corner, but at the end of the day, I think that he's always going to revert back to this uh, as is. It looks like Rick Kranitz's adjustment, if you if if they've made one here, is to incorporate the curveball more. Because the fastball percentage is down a little bit. It was 66.6 a year ago, down to 60% this season. Um, the changeup percentage is down just a little bit, uh, and the slider percentage is about the same. It's held steady. The curveball is the difference. He's gone from it 12.7 times, uh, I'm sorry, 12.7% a year ago, up to 18.7% this season. So it seems like the adjustment is let's throw the curveball more to make hitters respect the fastball, but that has not netted the result that they've they've wanted. Uh, so that adjustment is no. not has not worked to this point, and we'll see where they go from here because if they continue to do what they've done with him uh, i i see no reason i see no reason for for growth you know i don't i don't see where it happens no and you're right and, and yeah it, it's disappointing it's really disappointing because there you sit there and you watch it and you say this guy could be better now i don't think he's he could be great but i think he could be better than what you're getting but when you see i mean his whip is just it's astronomical. It's one point four six seven or something like that now. Um, it's it's crazy. I mean, you know, he gives up too many home runs. I mean, you um, saw where he was missing uh, his spots on Sunday. I mean, he wasn't even close to, to where. Yeah, Matt well, was so, up. I mean, so he and that's was missing other, it by half a foot. You know, so his like his walk rate is the best it's ever been. I mean, even better than what he was looking at and looking like in the minors. So his walk rate is really good, but that's that's not necessarily a positive because. All that means is, is he's leaving more meatballs <laughs> over the plate yeah. for guys to hit. Okay, so I mean that's you know, it's it's only thirty innings, it's only six starts. 
but and and like I said, two of those six starts were were encouraging, and four of them not so much. Um, but I don't know how much longer you can really go. I mean, I really don't. I mean, maybe maybe you know Eflin comes in here with with uh, lively on the DL and gives you a handful. I mean, he had some competitive starts in the past. Maybe he starts to show that he could be a number five guy. Yeah, he's typically either been really good or really bad. Right. You so know, maybe that's... he maybe he comes in and he can he can be a competitive number five guy. And that Velazquez's leash only lasts until um, uh, Eikhoff can come back later later this month, and, and that's it. I mean, that so maybe maybe you give Velazquez four more starts, and then after ten starts, you say, you know what, that's it. You know, we we can't, we just can't keep doing this. And I think the thing that you have to say to Velazquez's credit is that he has gotten me this upset. I, I won't get this upset about. Ben Lively uh, or Zach Eflin. If, if it doesn't work out with those guys, I go, well, I mean, that's what they are. What do you want? But yeah. Velasquez is the one guy that I just – it drives me crazy watching him pitch. Um, I, I talk to some people, and you get some feedback about the show, and they say, God, you guys are absolutely fixated uh, with Gabe Kapler. You know, like you guys just love to talk about Gabe Kapler. So how can you do a Phillies podcast and not talk about Gabe Kapler? I mean, he's still the prevailing storyline. Uh, this week in Gabe Kapler, uh, I'd like to bring up his uh, lineup, uh, his playing time distribution uh, with mm. the young players. Yeah. Uh, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago to kind of set this up. Um, you had said that uh, – Players need to know where they're at in the lineup every day and that that, that has a potential negative impact uh, upon their performance if they don't know that they're hitting second or sixth or seventh. And I kind of dismissed that at the time, and I said, I don't know. I think that a 94-mile-an-hour fastball in the inner half is still a 94-mile-an-hour fastball in the inner half, whether you're hitting second, sixth, or seventh. And that may be oversimplistic. That might be a little bit dismissive uh, on my end. And so I, I may be willing to concede on that point a little bit. But I will tell you that I agree with the premise that it is very hard to mature as a player and to uh, optimize your performance if you are not in the lineup every day. And right now what we're seeing is a, a shuffling with some of these young guys, particularly in the outfield, and it has had a uh, it has not netted positive results to this point. That would be the most rational way, the most calm way to say it. Uh, Nick Williams has been a disaster. Aaron Altair uh, had a little bit of a resurgence here over the weekend, but he's still hitting only 192 this season. Uh, let me ask you, who's at fault for this? Is this is this the reason these young guys haven't taken off to this point? Uh, Look, what do you I, think? I, again, I can't. I'm not going to give total blame to the manager because it's it is incumbent upon the player. You, it's baseball, like you said. You're in the lineup. You go out there and you hit. Okay, and, and that's your job. Your job is to get you know to hit the ball and get on base. Um, the argument that I made a few weeks back was that. You see different pitches in different spots in the lineup depending on situations and who's behind you, who's you know who's in front of you, who's likely on base, who's likely not on base, um, and so that's why I think more consistency with your lineup is a better thing um, for a team because you, you start to get into a rhythm of how you're how you're being pitched and you're being pitched a certain way, why? Because the guy behind you is is going to come up and do something. You know, they're worried about the guy behind you. or they're Like, in all honesty, I think Odubel's a really good hitter. He's reached base 30 consecutive games. That's a really impressive streak, okay? But you look at Odubel and you say, well, why? Why has he been able to get off to this great start? 
part of it is because he's a good hitter, but part of it's because he has been batting in front of Reese Hoskins, and nobody wants a pitch to Reese Hoskins because his his OPS is so good. I mean, he was he's what the uh, the first Philly since Von Hayes to have a 500 on base percentage after 100 at bats. I mean, that's crazy. Okay, so I mean, yeah, and know, I should say earlier I was killing all the Phillies' young hitters. I mean, Reese Hoskins does exist, right? Yeah, so yes, I, I think yeah. I, I should point that out. Yes, to be fair, yeah. he has been he has been awesome. Yeah, so I mean, I think that so I think part of Odubel's success has been the fact that he's been locked into that three hole and that he's been batting in front of Reese Hoskins. So he's probably getting better balls to, to swing at because if, you, if you're a man, if you're the opposing manager or your opposing pitcher um, and you're sitting there saying, OK, would I rather throw you know, better pitches to Odubel Herrera or throw better pitches to Reese Hoskins? You'd rather throw him to Herrera and, and he's taken advantage of it. And that's what he, a good player will do that. Um, so that's why I think lineup consistency is important, um, but it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're a ball player. You go up there and you hit. Okay, you, you know, I know they're creatures of habit and everything else, but that's beside the point. All right, well, let's um, let's walk through some of these guys on an individual basis. Yeah. So there may be players on this team that you like more than most people, and I get the sense for for me personally that I like Nick Williams more than than most people. I don't really know what his ceiling is. I guess he, in my mind, he he's a guy that could hit maybe two eighty for you, hit twenty five home runs. He's pretty good athlete um that that I guess is what he is and and I know that that's not exactly a rare commodity in major league baseball you can find those guys but I like Nick Williams I I I had some some general optimism for him um let's just talk about where he's at right now uh last year he hits 288 and 811 OPS I know he doesn't draw walks uh, and that's a limiting factor for him but he showed some promise he played the game with some confidence some energy some swag, if you will, not my favorite word, but he did. Uh, This year, he's hitting 185. Uh, He hasn't gotten a hit since April 16th. He's in the middle of an 0 for 20 stretch, and he has gotten four at-bats against left-handers this season. He has started 12 of 28 games, one as a DH and 11 in the outfield. Um, He comes to the plate as a pinch hitter on Sunday afternoon with runners on first and third and one out, and the Phillies are down 6-1, and he's hitting for Velasquez. And he comes up to the plate, and he bunts, and he pops it up, and it lands foul. And he goes up the first baseline, and Gabe Kapler says, swing. <laughs> so he gets back into the batter's box, and then he promptly grounds into a 1-6-3 double play to end the inning. That indicates to me that he is completely lost that he has no confidence right now that he has no idea what he's doing at the plate he has no plan he's just grasping his straws he looks like a ruined player right now uh, in terms of confidence I'm not really necessarily worried about the stat line on May 1st but just the way that he plays the game um, the way that he looks right now at the plate and then you mix in his prior comments, which he can say he was joking, but, I mean, the whole video games and he texts me yeah. so I know that I'm not playing. I would be concerned. You know, it's not about the lack of production. It's about several of these young players not being at the place we thought they were going to be at at this point in the season. And, and he, in particular, just looks like a, a completely defeated player at this point. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I think that it might actually be to the Phillies' benefit at this point. And this, and it would not. I don't know how Nick would take it, but I almost think maybe you send him down just to play every day. You know what I'm saying? And it's not for a long term, but just to kind of get him get himself right again. 
and then you bring him back up because you could you could bring Roman Quinn in to to be that right you could right. bring oh, Roman yeah, Quinn sure. up here to be the fourth guy and, and you know with the occasional start the two starts a week in a pinch hit or pinch run situation defensive or plate whatever I mean and that's that's not going to be a, a detriment and so you just get just get Nick back into the groove and swinging and you know just playing every day four bats a game kind of thing. And then see if he kind of, you know, if he tears it up again, you bring him right back. But that, but I think it's a confidence thing with him right now. You really need to get him being Nick Williams again. And that's and he has zero confidence right now. And, and let me throw this and, out at you. And, and it's it's the, it's the Phillies' fault. I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, it's it's the it's the Phillies' fault. This is the situation they've wrought with this. So yeah, that's what happens when you go out and sign Carlos Santana, right? I mean, yeah, there, somebody. This was going to be at the expense of somebody, but now. Do the Phillies look at this and say, well, this is a problem? I mean, maybe it kind of seems apparent that they don't view Nick Williams as an everyday player on a, a playoff team, right? I mean, look at the way that he's been utilized at this point. I mean, is that a fair, is that a fair assertion to, to say that they don't view Nick Williams as a part of this, this puzzle long term? I don't know because, like, I think that, I think that management maybe, maybe still thinks he can be. But I think that, I mean, when you hear him, and this is what his, he was joking about it. He says he was joking, but his line was so telling when he said the computers are making the lineups. Yeah. To, to me, that's what, it, so that's what it is. It's like they're, they're sitting there saying, let's run this through our, our statistical algorithm, and this is what's going to be the best lineup against this pitcher. And for whatever reason, Nick Williams is not coming up as one of the three best options in the outfield against certain, against most pitchers. It doesn't necessarily mean that the, I don't know if the, know if the team looks at him and says, "Well, he's not a, he's not a, an, an everyday outfielder in Major League Baseball." I don't think that they feel that way. I really don't. I mean, they, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been so big on him. They wouldn't have been promoting him as much as they did. And you got to remember, you look at their off season. A lot of the promotional stuff that they did before they signed Started around Nick Williams, yeah, yeah, before they signed. I mean, he's on on the opening day. You know, when we were down there, you know, we got the souvenir cups. He was on the opening day souvenir cup. Nick Williams. Okay, he was their their guy on the cover of their um, their magazine too. I mean, they have a lot of Nick Williams promotional stuff going on. So if the team really didn't think he was going to be an everyday player, they wouldn't have. As someone who worked for a professional sports team, I know that these conversations happen, right? So there's there is that business side and the and the sports side. Uh, the, the, they talk and they say, okay, we're going to start doing some marketing. Who should yeah, we so market? Some twenty three year old intern doesn't put Hobie Milner on the uh, <laughs> right. On oh, no, so, calendar. So, yeah. so right, so like the marketing director and whatever, and they go into the meetings and they talk to the 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 operate the baseball operations side. Or in, in, when I worked for the Flyers, it was hockey operations, and they would say, all right, listen, it's time for we're, we're putting our marketing materials together. Who do you, who should we be, you know, promoting, and who should we, you know, stay away from? And then the the the, the baseball operations or hockey operations side would always say, "Here's who it is, and here's who you should market." Well, when you see Nick Williams everywhere, it tells you that those people. It, it might not have been Matt Clentak specifically, but somebody under him in in, in his uh, in his team and his management team told the Phillies marketing people promote Nick Williams. Why? Because they think he's an everyday player. The fact that he's not been utilized that way so far. Is is concerning to me, not because I don't think they they think that of him, but I think that because maybe he was right, maybe that's how the lineups are being put together, you know. And and if that's the case, I I just can't I just can't take it I, because that's not 
It's not understanding humans. Well, it's I know that not, Aaron Altair had been drives hot. drives me crazy. Yeah, Aaron Altair had been hot before last night's game. I think he was hitting over 400 in the seven previous games. And uh, so I understand that and ride the hot hand. But then you, you look at the lineup last night, and Nick Williams isn't starting against Dan Straley on May 1st, and you just go, my God. You know, like if, if you can't get your lefty, your promising young left-handed hitting, you know, outfielder with some pop in the lineup against Dan Straley – that kind of lets you know where, where he's at right now. Um, yeah. And it's a concern. Well, I, I will say this, though. I mean, we talk about Altair being hot, and he did have that nice little run um, during the uh, end of the Pittsburgh series and then the beginning of the Arizona series. So he had like a five-game run, I think it was, where he had a hitting streak. What's a five-game? Yeah, five-game hitting streak. Um, I think he had like uh, eight, seven or eight hits in that, in that five games. But other than the game against Atlanta uh, with the 10-1 the, the to blowout loss where he had three hits, really, the last five games, he's been 0 for three times. The last four games, he's 0 for three times. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, is it that is it that hot of a streak that he had one game in four? Yeah, I think he had, he's at 273 over his last seven now, seven RBI in that stretch. He's still only hitting 192 for the season. But kind of to the, to the same point, I mean, he's only started 18 of 28 games, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, ideally, I, I understand that platoons have existed before, and I don't know that I would call this really necessarily a platoon because this isn't really two, about two players specifically. It's, it's a, a jumbling of, of everybody. But it, it just doesn't – it just has not. I don't want to say it does not or it will not, but it has not worked to this point. Um, yeah, and and it's a little bit of a concern. And the only other guy, and probably probably the guy that we should have led with in this conversation, is Scott Kingery, who is currently hitting two twenty five. He did have a hit last night. Uh, he busts onto the scene when he first when he first gets up here. He's putting together quality at bats. He's hitting home runs late, driving in meaningful runs, and he's in a little bit of a, a tough stretch right now. And I don't know about the the human element of this, but and I, I don't want to make excuses either. But this is a a rookie who is trying to acclimate himself to the major league lifestyle, major league pitching, uh, more importantly. And he's also already played six different positions for this team. He's bounced at shortstop, second base, third base, left field, right field. I mean, it, it, he's been everywhere for this team. He even, he even got into center field against yeah, that. Field, yeah, that would be the, yep, that's the sixth position. So, yeah. you know, it's hard enough. To try to make your major league debut, you know, and, and to play your rookie season, but to have to also learn five, six positions as you do it. I don't know. I, I know you want to get his bat in the lineup, and I know that they said they were going to be creative and that they feel that he can handle it, and he he very well may handle this. And, and as we get into May and June, he picks it up, and you go, wow, see, it all worked out. No big deal. You guys wasted seven minutes on a podcast on May 1st talking about Scott Kingery's early woes. But I just feel like this this could not have helped him. No, no. Although you know, you look at the. I mean, he's I, I, again last four games, four for thirteen, which is not terrible. Yeah, he's coming back um, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But then he he had a, a, a stretch where he went you know twelve straight at bats without it without getting on base, um, and that was an issue. Um, so that's why I think it, you know the numbers really kind of plummeted down. Um, during that uh, Arizona series, Pittsburgh and Ar- the end of the Pittsburgh series and the Arizona series. But, yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. It's so hard. I mean, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the best, you know, the best player in the game. Um, 
not knowing from game to game what position you're going to play. I mean, again, it's about that consistency thing. Now, the one thing I'll say is is that you, you really didn't have a spot for him, in, in all honesty. I mean, I guess I, I understand they want to get him in the major leagues, and it, and the, the contract that they put together was smart, and it was and it worked, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of okay with it. Um, but if it wasn't for Crawford getting hurt, and now Kingery going to be playing a lot of shortstop, I mean – you had three, you had four outfielders already. So I mean, getting him into the outfield rotation was kind of a crazy thing. Michael Franco has actually been okay. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to discuss him. <laughs> he's he's yeah, actually been, he actually okay. has been okay. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he's not been great. He's not been bad, like but to, he's not been bad. I'd like to put him on the boat with uh, Velasquez and <laughs> I know you, I know you would. Him away to another city somewhere. <laughs> I know you would, but he's he's been okay. So I mean, to sit there, I mean, if I, he's probably your fourth most consistent hitter after Hoskins, Herrera, and and Hernandez. I would agree with that. That's scary. so. Yeah, so that's that's like you can't to sit there and say, well, let's keep playing Kingery at third. Yeah, well, it, when 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 Franco's your fourth best hitter, you got to keep Franco in the lineup because nobody else is hitting. Um, so I kind of get it a little bit, but at the same time, I do wish there was a way that this could settle down. Well, and, what you see with Kingery, and, and and so this is this is somewhat similar to what we've talked about. He's had trouble with breaking balls and off speed stuff away. Uh, that has been how pitchers have attacked him. After his hot start, they said, okay, this is the adjustment that we're going to make. And t- he went through a, a two-week stretch where he really had a hard time laying off those pitches. He just couldn't do it. And he was expanding the strike zone, swinging at bad pitches, taking good pitches uh, to hit, and he just kind of got into a little bit of a funk. I, I don't think that that's going to um, – maintain. I, I do think that he's going to break out of that. I think that he is a, a dynamic enough hitter, uh, and I think he's a smart enough hitter to understand what the opposition's doing to him, how pitchers are planning him. Uh, but that really is the, that was the issue. That was the crux of the issue, that he was, he was expanding the zone on low and away breaking balls, and he wasn't making contact with them. Now, does that matter? If, if you're standing at third base or shortstop or left field, does that change what ails you? And I, that's, that's what the person who would say, listen, they had to go out and make this deal. It was a good deal that they signed with him. I'm, I still fully support that deal. I think that he should be up with them. I, I don't want to see this guy in AAA. I, I love the fact that he's up here. I'd rather have these ups and downs. I'd rather have him go through these growing pains at the major league level. But it, it's just one of those deals where you look at the way, if it was just Scott Kingery, if this was just a Scott Kingery thing, I'd say, well, whatever. It's just a product of the situation. But it also is a Nick Williams thing. It also is an Aaron Altair thing. It also, to a lesser extent, though it, it baffles me, is an Andrew Knapp, Jorge Alfaro thing. I, to, mm-hmm. Andrew Knapp should be a backup catcher. Andrew Knapp should catch 25, 30 games a year. I've seen way too much Andy Knapp so far. Uh, he's, he's, I know he's a switch hitter. I know that he gets on base a little bit, but the, the upside is so limited, and he's not a particularly good defensive catcher. I, I want to see more Jorge Alfaro. If, if that means that we're going to continue to see strikeouts and, and him go through it, fine. But when you look at what they have in this organization, it's either going to be Alfaro or nobody. And so if you're willing to live and die with all these other things as you go through this season, it should be that too. And, and his lack of playing time has gotten him off, I think, in part to a slow start. So it, it's, it's not one guy. It's a bunch of guys here, and, and that's my concern. Yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not wrong. I, I wish Kingry would take some more pitches. I really do. I think, he's a, I, think he doesn't, I don't think he walks enough. 
He's got six walks this year. He's gone 10 straight games without a walk. Um, I know that's not a long stretch, but, I mean, when you're striking out as much as he is, I mean, in those 10 games that he has no walks, yeah, he struck out 13 times. Okay, so you, your strikeout-to-walk ratio is 13-0 to zero over the last 10 games. That's I, I, He's got to start laying off pitches, that, you know, bad pitches like you were mentioning, but he's also got to you know, control the strike zone a little bit better. Um, that's what I, that's what I want to see him do. I, you know, if he's even if he's still scuffling with the batting average, if he's putting balls in play, if he, whatever, if he has better at bats, better approaches at the plate, I would feel a little bit more. Um, I'd, I'd feel better about him. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm not down on the kid. I mean, obviously, you know, like I said, he's gotten a hit in four straight games. I think he's starting to come out of it a little bit, but I want to see him take some pitches. Yeah, he's and got, that's, uh, what, six six walks in 95 plate appearances? Yeah, it's yeah, not it's enough. Not it's enough. just not enough. Which which leads me to a guy that, you know, you referenced a couple times now, um, and we talked about last week, um, Carlos Santana. And um, you were I know you were frustrated with him in that at bat last night with the bases loaded and one out and hitting the weak fly ball to right field, no run score. Right? You bases loaded, down two runs, bases loaded, one out. And nobody scores. Um, Santana hits the weak fly ball. Hernandez doesn't tag up, and then King Ree hits a weak ground ball to the catcher. Right, right sure. In front and of we the should or we should preface this by saying that Cesar Hernandez uh, really was yeah. the guy primarily at fault. There's no excuse for not not tagging yeah. on that play. Once the outfielder goes to his knees, uh, you know he talked about. Yeah. I had a good lead, and I had a good secondary lead, and by that time, once the play was made, I didn't feel that I could tag up. Like, why did you have a good secondary lead in the first place? You know, just <laughs> the ball is in the air. It is in the outfield. There's less than two outs. Tag up. Um, yeah. So that's a whole different issue. But, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit frustrated with Carlos Santana, and we've talked about sure. him. And I, I wrote about him, and I defended him. I said, you know, listen, he's, he has been unlucky. I know people don't want to hear it, but everything bears this out. His hard hit percentage is up. His line drive percentage is up. Uh, his walk percentage is up. And, and I gave all these fan graph statistics that, that should make you feel better about his long-term prognosis. But, yes, last night, 6-4, critical spot. Your team's reeling a little bit. He comes to the plate, he gets ahead 2-0, and he fouls off a couple pitches, works a full count, and then weakly flies out to right field. And I will say here on May 1st that I'm a little bit upset and a, a little bit disappointed in my patience is starting to, uh, it's starting to run out a little bit with Carlos. 2014, Carlos Santana, April. Had a lower batting average than he does right now. He was 151. He's 153 right now. Um, he had 22 walks and 23 strikeouts. This year he's got 20 walks, 21 strikeouts. So it's very similar. Okay, very close. Santana that year ended up leading the major leagues in walks with 113. Uh, his on-base percentage ended up being 365. He had 27 home runs, 85 RBIs for the Cleveland Indians. And he had that April. Now, if you go back and look at every April... For, and we did this before, but I mean, I really looked at the statistics. Only one year, 2013, did he have a uh, like a really good April. He was 28 for 72 that year, um, hitting 389 at the end of April. But he only walked 12 times that year. So the thing that I noticed is the seasons that he walks more in April, he actually starts slower at, with, with the with the uh, with his batting average. The seasons where he walks less. He has higher batting averages in April. Um, 
so it's I find that I find that really curious. Like I sit there and say, well, okay. So he when he's taking his pitches, and maybe that's what he does. Maybe that you know we we all know that he's a you know he's really good at controlling the strike zone. He t- walks a ton. I mean he walked over walked over a hundred times in a season, twice over ninety times in a season, six times. Um, and he's 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 going to break ninety again probably this year, um, assuming he's healthy. It, at what point? If he, you know, he's a lifetime two forty seven hitter, so it's not like he's a lifetime three hundred hitter. He's never been his best season hitting is two sixty eight. Yeah, well, like even the season that you're talking about, twenty fourteen, right. your reference point. So he had a yeah. one sixty four batting average of balls in play in, in April, and then one ninety three yeah. in May, and then it explodes in June and July. It jumps from to three sixty and three nineteen respectively. Yeah. Here, here's my here's my only concern so, about I mean, that so I guess, well, is that he so was 28 years old in 2014 and, and now he's, you know, not 30 he's 32 <laughs> years old. So, okay. Uh, you know, he's not 37, 38 years old. He has a track record. His numbers are in some ways aligned with, with previous seasons. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is, this won't work, but I am now annoyed. And that's fair. And that's fair, Bob, to be annoyed. It's fair to be annoyed. But, but my question is, what was your expectation? Was your expectation that he was going to come in and be a 300 hitter? Because he's no, never done I think that in my, his career. My composite expectation was a, a guy that would hit 255 to 260, reach base 34, 35% of the time. You know, I okay. Maybe yeah. 20, 25 home runs here in Citizens okay. Bank Park. Uh, you know, I, I thought and that guy gives you professional at bats, but you know, the thing is, I guess more so than the numbers was just situationally. We were kind of sold on his approach, right? It's that yeah. he delivers professional at bats and he can really bear down and, and situationally he can do certain things for you. And I know I'm, I'm limiting myself to one situation talking about last night, but sure. it does feel like there have been numerous times where he's come up in, in fairly significant spots throughout the season and he hasn't generated that contact. Now, if he would have ripped the cover off the ball and hit a 102-mile-an-hour screamer at the second baseman, I would have said, okay, like, again, more bad luck. But that's a situation where you have a favorable count, favorable matchup, you're dictating that at bat early on. I, I need you to drive the baseball there, and, and he just didn't. And it's not the first time, and it just it, it has not gone well for him to this point. And I have kind of become increasingly impatient. Do I think that at the end of the day, when you, when you look at his numbers in September, you'll say, yeah, they're pretty much in line with what he's been? I, I hope so. I, I suppose that's a reasonable outcome at this point. Um, maybe the likely outcome, but at, at right now, yeah, this, this is starting – in my opinion, to become at least a little bit of a concern that a 32-year-old player that just signed a big contract uh, has seen a pretty significant regression in his production. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I just just think that we can be, because of of the track record and because of the consistency of the track record, I mean, if you look every year, he plays – 150, 155 games, got 650 plate appearances. I mean, it's every, it's very consistent from 2011 to 2017. And every year it's it's about the same batting average, about the same on-base percentage, about the same um, home runs. I mean, like everything is pretty, you know, within a, a very small range, but it's consistent. I, I think that we owe him the opportunity to do that. Oh, again. certainly. I mean, I'm yeah. not saying that the guy should be benched. You know, I'm not saying that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I hope I'm not giving that off. I just, 
I'm frustrated. I, I'd like yeah. to see more out of him. It's, it's a little bit disappointing. It's a, a little bit concerning. That's all. Uh, I don't think the guy should be benched. I, I'm not saying we need to, to move on or anything like that, but uh, I am looking for a little bit more out of him, and, yeah. and I am starting to become increasingly less patient uh, with with the whole, like, well, you know, he's been unlucky. Well, okay, that's, that's fair to an extent, and I, I do understand that, but it, it's time now. Like, let's get going here. Yeah. All right. Two two things to wrap this this uh, episode up. Uh huh. Um, one um, and from, these are from around baseball. Um, boy, the Dodgers are a mess right now, aren't they? With the injuries. Yeah, that's Did no good. The Corey, Corey Seager, yeah. Corey Seager out for the year with uh, with the he's going to have Tommy John surgery. It's going to mean that Chase Utley is going to have to play every day for them now. Yeah. I mean that, that's that's. I mean when you think about it, not that he's going to play shortstop, but he's going to have to play second base. Uh, pretty much every day because you know you're, you're still without Turner at third, so the, the guys who have a little bit more flexibility to play in the infield are gonna have to play shortstop and third base, while Utley's gonna have to play second. If they and, can kind of uh, just stay afloat, I, I would expect them to go out and and spend the money to try to patch that thing up. I mean, they're they're nearing the end there. I know they're they're a little bit older. They Clayton Kershaw, they have to make a decision there. I don't know. Do you, do you let that opportunity with what they have left just just go by? Uh, we'll well, say. you know, it's it's interesting to say. I mean, because you know they've struggled out of the gate a little bit. You know, they're and you know, the Diamondbacks have gone off to such a great start, and they look like they're a legit squad, and they're going to be you know really good team all year in, in the West. If the Dodgers are kind of falling out of it at the All Star break, is is Kershaw a trade piece at that point? Like, what do you do? That's an, to me. To me, they're incredibly interesting in that in that vein because you know you know obviously you'd like to re-sign them and bring them back, but geez, does this is this is this what what breaks them? Is yeah, this what breaks the they Dodgers? Have quite a decision on their hands there, you know. Yeah, uh, that's. I don't uh, think <laughs> I think he's a guy you can't let go, right? Isn't isn't he that guy, or is that he, what got the Phillies into trouble? Uh, you know, back in, in 2010, 2011. I just yeah, I mean he I has like, he has. He has taken a little bit of a dip over the last couple of years, and not to say I mean you know, he's gone from being, you know, a, you know, lights out, absolutely untouchable, to being a guy who's really you know, good. still a, yeah. just really still a really good starter. But you're starting to see small small cracks there. But um, yeah, it's it, you got to decide. I mean, what do you? What, and you know, maybe maybe Kershaw's willing to give you another year, but I don't know. I mean, I, if you're a pitcher, you you try and get the biggest payday you can get because you never know when your arm's going to go right. Yeah. Um, that's it. I, th- I think that the Dodgers are in a int- real intriguing situation right now. Yeah, he's going to get paid. I mean, he's only th- he just turned thirty. Uh, he just yeah. turned thirty back in March, right? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, he's he's going to get one more mega deal here for sure. Uh, that contract actually, I think, does extend through what twenty twenty. But there's options. Is that the, is that the deal he can opt out of it at the end of the season? I think is that how yes. that works? Yeah. Yes. So I mean, he's six starts two. Two eight four ERA, yeah, that's that's decent. Um, Forty two strikeouts and thirty eight innings. I mean, he's still he's still doing it. I know he's only one and four though. I mean, that's that's more of an indictment of the Dodgers than it is Clayton Kershaw though. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a tough situation for them. That division stacked. Even the Rockies, you know, they're a decent team. I think they're hovering around the five hundred mark. Giants, you know, uh, Diamondbacks look like they're just the class of the thing. That they will have. Uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, there's some. There's obviously time, plenty of time for that to kind of sort itself out. But if they're sort of uh, in this same situation where they're in this in between, come July, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do there. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to talk about, and this is really ridiculous, but 
since they put it out there, I think it's worth at least five minutes conversation. So ESPN put a had wrote a story, and Sam Miller who does really nice work for them. Um, I you know always like his uh, his pieces, and they're they're well thought out. Put put together an idea. What if every major league baseball team made the playoffs? And and the concept behind this, so it'd is be like that, the NHL basically. No, oh, you're yeah. so wrong. You know, a higher percentage of teams uh, in the yeah, NBA, in the NBA, make the playoffs than they do in the NHL. Higher yeah. percentage. Nobody ever says that, but more teams in the NBA make the playoffs and, than and, in the NHL. And you know what? That's stupid too. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Uh, continue. <laughs> um, anyway, so his 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 argument um, that he makes is that. Uh, there were 441 games last year where the home team had 0% chance of making the playoffs. So more than 40% of all games were hosted by a team, and more than 40% of all games were hosted by a team with single-digit odds of making the playoffs. And one in six games featured two teams that were single digits competing for nothing. And they drew about, on average, 5,000 fewer fans than the average game. Um, So he said, well, how can we fix this? And his, so his plan is is to start the playoffs early, but to not really change it's, – it's a kind of a convoluted process. But it would start the playoffs September 1st with the bottom teams playing each other in a series. So if you're 15th-seeded um, team against the 14th-seeded team, okay? But that in, that in other words, keep the other teams continuing to play for positioning ahead of them. So all right, so come September first, whoever's in last place plays whoever's in fourteenth place in a three game series. But everybody else is still playing with the standings going on. Okay? So this way this way teams are still playing for something. And then once that series is over, whoever wins that then plays the next highest team. So it would be it would play thirteen, whoever's in thirteenth place at that point. So the teams still have things that you're still battling for positioning because you want to wait till the end. Obviously you want to be at you know one of the best teams and you play in the end. It makes the regular season have meaning, um, but then, but it also would eliminate teams, you know, earlier, and that way, all games at the end of the year would matter and not, not have what you know what you usually have. Your thoughts? <laughs> I think this may be the most predictable answer, but I do not <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, so I, I read the article and. The question I think that anybody listening to you just explain that would have would be. Why? You know, yeah, make the games yeah. more important, you know, less games that don't matter. You're not watching the White Sox and, uh, I don't know, the Royals this season play some meaningless game in the middle of September. Sure. Okay. Um, but I, th- this is where I kind of really deviate. He says, mostly because players deserve to play for something and because the sport really works only if we believe they're playing for something. As it is, a full third of the league exists more or less outside the realm of hope and faith. And then he uses Joey Votto as an example. Joey Votto's value to most of us is as a stack creation machine for our fantasy teams. Joey Votto's value to the standings is to play spoiler and ruin another team's weekend. For one of the five best players in the world and one of the great careers of this generation, that seems like an incomplete existence. Maybe it's because I don't really like Joey Votto, but I don't care about Joey Votto. You know, like (laughs) if... I don't really care if Joey Votto doesn't get to play in a World Series. That's none of my concern. You know what my concern is? My concern is about yelling at Vince Velasquez every fifth day. And my concern is about the egomaniac manager. And my concern is about the young players getting off to a bad start. And my concern is that 
the, the same things that it's always been. It's been about my team. And, and maybe that makes us too parochial. Uh, maybe that's a, a simplistic way of looking at it. And uh, we are selling the game short by doing it as we've done now for, what, 170 years. But I'm, I'm going to roll with that. that. That would be where I'm at. I, I don't really – I don't mind innovation. I, I really don't. And I think it sounds like I'm resistant to it. But – that to me feels like making a change just for the sake of making a change. And the way that you build a team, the way that you – I don't care about positioning so much. Like if, if you, you – you can totally change the way the game is played and built, you, the way that you construct your rosters if that's going to be the setup. Um, I just don't like it. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. I mean I, I am more of a traditionalist. I, I kind of get it, and I kind of think it would be a, a unique thing to see once – just kind of, oh, I wonder, wonder how that would work out, but I don't think long term it's a it's a real viable thing. I mean, for a myriad reasons. I mean, you know, you're expanding to forty man rosters in September as well. I mean, you, you got to have that ability to do that just to control, uh, to you know, see your young players and to also you know keep guys from you know ta- overtaxing themselves on the number of innings that they're throwing or whatever the case might be. Um, so you know, you, you have the you have that as an option in September as well. Um, and I think that the wild card race is enough. I think that adding the second wild card has made 500 teams, you know, dream of October. And and I think that's plenty. We don't need, you know. The well, his whole thing point. is that you know we say hope springs eternal, right? And he he yeah. makes the point that even with the even with the wild card round, that nearly half of uh, Major League Baseball's 30 teams had a 10 percent or less chance to make the playoffs uh, before the season started. So. He's basically saying that a third of the league is irrelevant from the first pitch. Well, I maybe would concede that, but that's more of, of uh, an indictment of the game as it is. I just don't still think that this would be the, the, the fix. This isn't the solution. I mean, maybe there are issues with Major League Baseball in terms of competitiveness and more and more teams just kind of basically saying we are not positioned to win, but this to me isn't the well, fix. I, I mean, he used the a- Oakland A's as an example, but I, I'll throw the Phillies at you. I mean, the Phillies were terrible in the first half of the year, right? And then they had a – they were only one game under five hundred. Um, in the second half of the season, um, played pretty good ball down the stretch. So, you know, if, if by his argument, would it have been interesting to see the w- with, with the way the Phillies were playing and have them play games that mattered, right. um, even if they don't make the run, so to speak, all the way through. Um, but they were a bottom feeder team, and maybe, you know, you play a couple of other of the bottom feeder teams and you win and you win and they build some excitement. And, okay, maybe the team doesn't make the run necessary to to go to the, you know, to the the – final eight teams or whatever you want to say but at the very least you sit there and say well that's that's something to build on they got some experience in games that mattered and you know we always talk about that you know you know oh you want to see young guys play in the playoffs because oh they you know it's good experience for them or whatever the case might be i i can see the value in that i certainly can i think it's i think it's too radical an idea for for american sports i really do it sounds very european to me it's too it's too radical an idea for us it sounds very european soccer to me i'm gonna make a great 75 year old man one day you know like that's the way it was when i was a kid and that's the way it should be now and that's what i'm sticking to you know that's that's kind of what i am i'm I'm set my ways at this point but good idea good premise very interesting uh very intelligent argument i couldn't make it so good on him yeah no yeah so i mean i i found it i found it interesting uh, there, there have been crazy ideas in the past. I just say I, that's. I just dismiss it out of just you know automatically. 
I at least thought about this one, but I say no, I can't. Give do it me anymore. my 162 games, 90 which are are probably meaningless, uh, and and I'm yeah. good. <laughs> That's great. That's right. All right. Well, Bob, I think that'll that'll pretty much do it for us this week. Uh, we'll check back in with you guys uh, next week, and hopefully, we'll have better things to say uh, about the Phillies because, um, yeah, it, this was this has been a trying week. I mean, they have an opportunity here, I think, to to really kind of you know show their metal a little bit. I mean, you're playing Miami, okay, fine, but then this, you got the you got the Nationals this weekend. Um, and then, uh, then you come home to uh, get the Giants coming in for a four-game series, and then the Mets. So I mean, this is a yeah. We're going to learn something the, uh, next two weeks yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think this is this is this is the time we're going to learn a little bit about this Phillies team. So I think it's going to be really interesting for us moving forward. Um, but be sure to check out the uh, other podcasts here on the Crossing Broad Network. Uh, you got the Crossing Broadcast, which airs three days a week with uh, Kyle Scott and Russ Joy. Um, we have um, uh, Snow the Goalie, the Flyers podcast. Even though they're not playing, we're going to keep that thing rolling weekly um, through the summer, looking at uh, breaking down the uh, off season and stuff like that. It'll be me and Russ Joy. Um, and then there are our two soccer podcasts. Uh, it's Always Soccer in Philadelphia with Kevin Kincaid that talks about the Philadelphia Union and Crossing Broad FC with Russ Joy and Phil Kaidel talking about European soccer since it's so popular here. And uh, guys like us, we, you know, they'll never have us as guests on that show, right, Bob? I do not think I will be a featured guest on that anytime soon. No, nor will I. Um, but anyway, check them out as well if you're a big soccer fan. Anyway, uh, that's it for, for us. Again, Bob Wankel at BW Crossing Broad. Uh, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at Ant San Philly on Twitter. Uh, check us out, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. See All ya. Right. See you later, everybody.